Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The United States, by and large, is made up of people seeking something new and fresh. As a result, we can undervalue the old, which is not always a good thing. Teaching team member Caleb Click finishes the series Worship Together with this sermon entitled We Worship Together as Part of a Bigger Story, which covers Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, and various other texts. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. We're glad to be here with you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be starting in verse 22. Uh, And we're continuing this morning uh, in our series on worshiping together. Uh, And this is going to be a little bit of a a, a, something different than I'm used to doing. Normally, I I like to just exposit a single text. This is going to be a little bit more of a topical sermon. There's going to be some bouncing around. Uh, But this is going to be the main text that's going to govern the whole. And if you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, here's what's taking place. Uh, The writer of Hebrews, he's addressing this unique situation in the life of the church. The people of God. Those who have come to believe in Jesus Christ, they are being persecuted for their faith. And there's a group of believers who are beginning to wonder if maybe life would be a little bit easier. If maybe life would be a little less hard if instead of confessing Jesus, they went back to the way they used to worship as members of the Jewish faith. To go back to the temple and back to the sacrifices. And the thinking was, if that was good enough for our fathers and mothers before us, surely that will be good enough for us now. And the writer to the Hebrews, he says, if that's what you think, then you, you have severely misunderstood what it is that Christ offers. Uh, Christ is not a reality to be let go on. He is someone to be held on to with every single thing that you have because what Christ has brought his people into, it is something infinitely better, infinitely deeper, infinitely greater than anything that you had before. He says in chapter 12, verse 18, that the, the saints of old, they came to Mount Sinai and God descended on that mountain in a fiery, in a blazing fire and in a tempest, and the people of God, they trembled in fear because they knew to their core, to their depths, that they were sinners in the presence of a holy God, and while they longed to approach him, they could not because of that reality. That as good as that covenant was, and its promise of God that one day he would restore and redeem everything sin had broken, that one day he would dwell again with his people, there was staring in their face this limitation. They could not yet draw near. Why? Because of sin. The writer of Hebrews in verse 22 says that limitation, it has been abolished completely through the work of Jesus Christ. He says here, if you're in Christ, Here is where you now are. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new a better covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word 
than the blood of Abel. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text and we prepare to hear from your word, we ask through your spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Lord, would you make Jesus glorious in our eyes and our hearts? Would you awaken our soul to the one for whom we were made and who redeems us in full? And Lord, would we leave this place not walking in our own strength or in our own power, but instead, Lord, having cast ourselves into the arms of the only one who can actually save, Jesus Christ himself. Amen. We live in an age that loves what is new, that's constantly chasing whatever the latest and the greatest thing is. Uh, and this, this shows itself everywhere in our lives. The most recent example in the Click House was this mailer that showed up in our mailbox from a phone company that was trying to encourage us to switch services. And, and they offered, just because they're so good-hearted, uh, they offered, if we would do this, they would give us a brand new iPhone 13. Now, Mallory and I saw that flyer and our ears immediately perked up. We're like, iPhone 13? We have 11s, 13 is higher than 11. That must mean it's better, right? Like surely this newest iteration, it means the old one's about to be obsolete. The new one is the place to be. We've gotta get it, we've gotta have it. And it made me start thinking back to just how far we've come when it comes to phone technology. I mean, things have radically changed in my lifetime. Like I remember as a middle school boy getting dropped off by my mom at the library and knowing that the only way she was gonna pick me up any earlier than whatever the appointed time was, was if I could find some quarters and put them in a payphone. And then, when I made that call, I was hoping, praying, that she would be sitting by the phone and actually there to answer it. Because if she wasn't, I was staying at the library for a long time. When I was in college, 18 years old, I got my first cell phone. It was this silver metal flip phone that I, I swear you could throw that thing at a brick wall and the brick wall would break. Uh, it was powerful, it was strong, and it could make phone calls almost anywhere on campus, just not my room. I could text people from it. I had instant access to other people and I remember thinking like, this is astonishing, what is this? But if you told me, and I'm gonna be clear, I was happy in those days. I was fine with the payphone. I was fine with the flip phone. But if you told me now that I had to go back, my soul would start to shrivel because it would feel like you're throwing me back into the Stone Age. There is this thing in us where we think new must be better. New is what we need. New is something precious. New is something to be pursued. And that idea, that belief, it permeates our culture. And it shows itself even in the way that we worship. You know, in the past hundred years, there's been a massive shift in the way we worship together as God's people. There has been this movement where there's this common seeming consensus that those things that are old, that feel old, that feel traditional, those are things to be run from. Those are things that we need to abandon and what we need to pursue instead is what feels relevant or new because we wanna make sure that we reach the next generation. So we have new songs, we have new styles, we have new sounds, new forms of worship. And I wanna make very clear, there's a part of that that is very, very good. Christ's call to take the gospel to the nations means that we are constantly having to contextualize the gospel. We're having to ask, how do we communicate it in a way that other people can understand it? 
But here's the danger. Here's the risk. New isn't always better. And old isn't always bad. And in our quest to always have the newest and the latest and the greatest, there is a very real risk that we might cut ourselves off from something precious. Something we actually need. C.S. Lewis, more than almost any other writer, he saw this danger in his own era, not just in ours. He looked around and he saw there was this trend where everyone wanted to read new books. They wanted the books with the newest ideas by the newest authors. They wanted the ones that came out on Wednesday and not the ones that came out last Tuesday. They, they wanted books that were within their lifetime and not ones that were from several centuries before. And he said, there's nothing wrong with reading new books. We should. But he said, there are dangers if that is all you read. One of them is the danger of ignorance. Uh, you become like the person who shows up at a dinner party at 11 o'clock and enters into a conversation that started at 8 o'clock. You don't actually know what they're talking about, but you think you do, and you sound like a fool. The second, the second is the danger of being culturally blind. Because as Lewis points out, every age and every culture have these common assumptions that are just assumed and never questioned. So much so that you have more in common with the person you think of as your polar opposite in the present age than you probably do with the person you might think of as your friend in a past one. There are these blinders that we are all wearing. We're like fish. We don't realize that we're swimming in water. It's everywhere. And the only cure, Lewis says, the only palliative, is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. My contention this morning is we need that clean sea breeze to be blowing not just through our minds and books, but through our worship. Because Christianity, Christianity is not like an iPhone. It's not something where with each successive generation, the one that came before becomes obsolete. Christianity is grounded in something much deeper, something much more stable and much more secure. It is a reality that is grounded in Christ Jesus in eternity past and stretches into eternity future, a reality that begins before Jesus ever took on human flesh, before he ever died for our sins, before he was ever raised from the dead, before he ever ascended to the Father, and it is one that will continue long after the day that Jesus returns. And our worship, what we do together as God's people, it should reflect that reality, and here's why. Because Christ, he has first made us members of a body that spans the ages. You see this in Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews is writing to this church and he says, the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that proclaims God's mercy and grace and forgiveness to sinners, that opens wide the arms of God and says, here is your welcome. Come and find rest and find life. That blood, it has brought us into this incredible reality. We're not standing outside the city where God dwells. We have been brought in. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. With the Old Testament people were worshiping in shadow, you, you now have in full in Christ. 
You worship with the innumerable angels who sit around the throne. You worship in the presence of the God who will be the judge of all. And you do so not trembling like those in front of Mount Sinai, but in the full confidence that Christ has made you perfect through his atoning work. And you can have access as children without fear. You worship with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Those people who have been purified by Christ and who are waiting simply the resurrection from the dead. And we could spend weeks upon weeks expositing every single clause of those verses. But all I want us to hear today is one of them. Christ has brought us to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. He uses this word here, this Greek word ekklesia, which we commonly translate as church. A, a word that shows up over and over again in the scriptures and in the New Testament almost always has exactly the same meaning. Uh, it's the word that uh, Jesus uses in Matthew 16 when he says, on this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, it's the word the idea that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 12 is referring to when he says that, that Jesus, the, the crucified and resurrected Jesus, he now at this moment stands in the midst of the congregation, the ecclesia, and he proclaims the goodness of his father to his brothers and sisters, all who have been redeemed in him right now. Over and over you find them all coming back to this one reality. It is speaking of the one gathering of all of God's people from every tribe and language and people and nation and from every single age. All those who have been redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ and have come to share in the inheritance of the firstborn. People from every walk of life who now stand as equal heirs of something that Christ alone deserves. Christ, Christ is the firstborn, not us. As Colossians 1 says, he's the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. But we get to share in the inheritance he deserves. Why? Because we have been united to him. So that whatever is ours is now his and whatever is his is now ours. We have been made a part of a people far bigger than this present moment far bigger than one country or one culture or one language, but one that spans the globe and spans the ages, a church of which this church and our denomination is but one tiny part. And it is a reality the writer of Hebrews says we need in front of our eyes because it transforms the way you see and experience the world around you. Christ has made you a member of a body that spans the ages. One of the most significant books ever written, Christian or otherwise, is a book called The City of God by Augustine. And it was a book that was written in response to, to what was seen as a historically cataclysmic event. In 410 AD, German barbarians invaded the city of Rome and they took this city the city that was, was seen the world over as the most stable and secure in existence. It was the capital of the empire that ruled the world, a place that was seen as so long-lasting, so permanent, the nickname for Rome was the Eternal City. 
Well, in 410 AD, the German barbarians, the Visigoths, they burned the eternal city to the ground. Now imagine waking up the next morning and finding out what's just happened. It would be like waking up here in the United States and discovering that the night before, everything that you have grown up in, all that you've just taken for granted and assumed is gone. Our government, our economy, our infrastructure, our military, the safety and security that we've taken for granted, all of it gone, just like that poof in the middle of the night. Now imagine that that country was not one like ours that's only been around for a couple hundred years. Imagine it's one that has stood for a thousand years, that had guaranteed a, a version of peace almost around the entire known world. Imagine the fear and the uncertainty and the questions that might provoke. One of those questions was this. When Rome fell, did Christianity fall with it? Is all of this Christianity's fault? Because at that time, the Roman Empire and the Christian church were so meshed in people's minds since Constantine that to see the one fall made them wonder if maybe the other had fallen too. And Augustine, this African bishop looking across the Mediterranean at the eternal city in flames, said in answer to that question, is this Christianity's fault? He gave us his answer, an emphatic no. Because he said, in this world, there are two cities. There's the city of man, a city that is born of sin, that contains that all of us are born into, a city that loves themselves more than they love God, that puts their hope in the things of this world and things that death will ultimately pluck from all of our fingers a city that is not lasting, a city that is temporary, a city that will one day be burned. And then he said, but there's also another city, the city of God, a city born not of sin, but of grace, composed of redeemed sinners, people chosen by grace and redeemed by the work of Jesus who have been brought into a reality they do not deserve but God freely gives, whose hearts have been changed by the Holy Spirit so that what they love is not self but God. And that what they hope for is their greatest good. It is not the things of earth but God himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth whose reward is not in what they can get here, but instead it is in the hope and the reward they receive from the hands of Jesus, an eternal reward that no one can take away. Augustine said, one of these kingdoms is a passing one. The other is an eternal one. One of these kingdoms, it is a kingdom that can be shaken and will one day crumble to dust. The other, the other is a kingdom with eternal roots and an eternal future because it rests in the hands of the eternal God. And while Rome may fall, while America might fall, that city never will. Hebrews 12 says, if you're in Christ, you are a citizen of that city. You are an heir of that inheritance, an inheritance that nothing can take away because it is guarded for you in Christ. Jesus, if that's true, it means that while you may feel alone when you walk through the halls of your school, or when you step into your office at work, 
you are never actually alone because you stand as a member of a body of saints of old who have already run that race long before you ever ran it. A body of witnesses, as Hebrews 12, the very beginning tells us, who can point to their lives and say, we ran the race, and our lives testify to the sustaining grace of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of suffering. A people who looked ahead to things they did not yet have in their possession, but they knew were theirs in and through Jesus Christ. And they urge us to run that race and to look to Jesus even as they did. It means that your hope, it isn't bound up with your present circumstances or even this present church here at Perimeter, so much so that even if your circumstances seem to fall apart around you and this church right here crumbles, which I don't want it to happen, but it could, guess what? Your hope hasn't faded one iota because it is bound up in the one who has made you a member of the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. And that is a reality no one can take away. It means the sweep of God's grace. It is broader than you could possibly comprehend because the blood of Jesus, it invites into that assembly everyone from prophets like Moses to prostitutes like Rahab. It brings in murderers and it brings in kings. It brings in slave traders like John Newton and former slaves like Frederick Douglass. It brings in villagers from Papua New Guinea and it brings in stock traders on Wall Street and it brings them all into the family of God, all of them by grace alone, and it makes them equal heirs of the same inheritance so that there is no more priority, no more hierarchy in the people of God. Instead, it is a people astonished and flooded in grace by Christ alone. And that, that is where our hope is found. And if worship, as we've said over the past few weeks, if worship is the place where we're being formed, where people who lived as a part of the city of man are being formed into citizens of the city of God, then our worship, it should be preparing us for the worship that happens with that eternal assembly. Which means we shouldn't be purging our worship of the voices of those who've gone before. Our worship should be permeated with those voices. We should hear it in our songs and in our sermons and in our prayers and in our confessions because Christ has made us a part of a body that spans the ages. But not only that, Christ has made us part or heirs of a faith that spans the ages. You know, we live in an increasingly polarized age where everything seems to be getting divided down the middle and into increasingly fragmented pieces. And perhaps nowhere do we see that more than in the church. When you look at the church, it's easy to look at it and go, man, it, there seems to be so much diversity and so much division. It makes you almost question if there is one thing that really binds them all together. You've got the major branches of Christianity, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant, You've got all the forks and tributaries contained within each of those traditions. And the Protestant one, you've got Baptists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals. You've got cessationists and charismatics. You've got uh, people who hold to, to pre-trib and post-trib and or, uh, or premillennial and post-millennial and amillennial. And then there's the people who hear those things and think, I don't really care, I just love Jesus. You've got every different stripe, color, denomination, everywhere that you turn, and so you could almost go, there's just so much. Is there any one thing that actually binds us all together? And this is where what C.S. Lewis was saying becomes so incredibly important. 
Lewis says when you begin to pull back from your present age and you begin to see the larger picture of God's people and you look down the corridor of history, you begin to see amid all of that diversity there is something varied and yet unmistakably the same. What he calls an immensely formidable unity. Something he made famous with the phrase mere Christianity. There is something that binds together the people of God across space and time. And while we may express those things differently because of our present moment in our culture, there is a core reality that binds us all together. Something that Jude 3 calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You see this running like a thread all the way through the book of Hebrews. And as you remember from earlier, in the book of Hebrews, the, the writer is responding to a people who are wondering, should we abandon Christ and go back to the worship of the Old Testament people of God? Should we worship in the temple and with the sacrifices? And the thinking was that one, it won't cost me as much, and two, if it works for them, why shouldn't it work for me? And the writer of Hebrews he says, if that's what you think this is, if it's just a mechanism, then you have completely misunderstand, misunderstood what God has been doing. From Genesis 3 on, when God made the first promise of grace, God has presented to his people one plan of salvation that has been progressively unfolded through various administrations across time where generation after generation, God is revealing more and more of what he has promised to do, that he's going to redeem this broken world, that he's gonna restore what sin is broken, that he is going to again dwell with his people. So somehow those sinful people, they're gonna be made holy. And all the while there is this question, how is God going to bring all that together? The people of God, the saints of old, they knew they knew they were worshiping in things that were mere shadows and they were waiting for the reality. It's the whole point of Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews says the thing to which those all pointed, that has now come in full in Jesus Christ. Jesus, he is the reality of which all of those things were a shadow. And if you abandon him, you are not only denying the faith of the church today, you are denying the faith of the Old Testament church too because they worshiped in hope of his coming. There is something, something that has bound them together and it is something the writer of Hebrews says, you are not ever to let go of this. And here, here is something that unlike the, the previous administrations had more to unfold. Here, it never changes because as it says in Hebrews 13 verse eight, Jesus Christ He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints in Jude 3. It's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says to the Corinthian church, I preached the gospel to you. And when I did, I delivered as a first importance what I myself received, that Christ died for sins. I didn't give to you something I invented. I gave you something God himself gave me and now I give to you and you're to guard it, protect it, cherish it, hold fast to it and give it to others. When Paul writes to Timothy 
This young pastor in a pagan city who's pastor in a church and doesn't know what to do, he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 2 Timothy 1, verse 14, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What I received, I now deliver, and you, what you received, you are to deliver. It is something to be cherished and held on to and built up in and never, ever, ever to be abandoned. And while the way we express it may change, the core reality it does not because Jesus, Jesus doesn't change. And what he offers, it doesn't change either. You know, this is, this is one of the reasons here at Perimeter that we try to incorporate as best we can the creeds and the confessions of the church. I mean, even in things that maybe don't seem like they're that old, like the confession of sin we did earlier, uh, all that language, it came from three groups of old dead people. One, the scriptures, you got the saints of old. Two, Augustine, the guy from the city of God. And three, John Calvin, who's a, kind of the direct ancestor of our particular denominational tradition. But there's also something you'll notice we do every other month with regularity in a way we don't do the other things. We recite the Apostles' Creed. Now, why do we do that? The reason is simply this. Because for over two millennia, the Apostles' Creed has been seen as the baseline for Christian orthodoxy. It was a summation in the first two centuries of the church of the apostles' teaching about the work of Jesus Christ and all the branches of Christianity, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant, all of them affirmed that while it wasn't the ceiling, as in it didn't give you every single thing contained in the Christian faith, it was the floor. And so to deny the apostles' creed would be to step outside of the bounds of something that was truly Christian. And this was true not just of the Roman Catholic and of the Eastern Orthodox Church, this was true of the Protestant reformers. You know, we typically think of the Reformation as this like sharp breach where everybody is just going off and innovating and doing new stuff. The reformers would not have recognized that about themselves. In their minds, they were going not to something new, they were going back to what was old. They were calling the church to return to her roots. And all through their writings, they're citing all of these early church fathers and early theologians and saying, we are not the ones who are departing, you have. And one of the ways they showed this was with the Apostles' Creed. When you look at Calvin or Luther or Zwingli, who if those names mean nothing to you, that's totally fine. They're just old guys from the 1500s who were major theologians in the Protestant Reformation. That's all it is. If you learn some cool new names for your children someday. They saw the creed as a summation of the entirety of the gospel. Uh, in their catechisms, it was how they explained what the gospel contained and what it meant. When they did their worship, all three of them made sure that the creed was a major part. You recited it as a body. You were constantly being reminded you were an heir of a faith that spanned the ages. You stood on the shoulders of those who had come before because as Calvin put it in his Institutes, the whole history of our faith is summed up in the Apostles' Creed, succinctly and in definite order. And it contains nothing that is not vouched for by genuine testimonies of Scripture. As he goes on to say in another chapter, it is an invitation to see the rich store of every kind of good that abounds in Christ, and then to drink from that fountain and that fountain alone. 
If we really believe that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we would be wise to do the same. Because in our quest for those things that are new, there is a very real danger that we will cut ourselves off from something precious. Because think with me for a moment. If Jesus Christ is the Lord and the head of his church, and he has been the one who has been providentially and sovereignly caring for his people across the centuries, and he has been sanctifying the whole body, even as he sanctifies us as individuals, and working through his spirit, even through things like theological controversy, to sharpen and deepen our understanding of the unfolding depths of his glory and goodness, then when we cut ourselves off from the church in the past, we're actually risking cutting ourselves off from the one who is her head and Lord, Christ Jesus himself. When we are grappling with how to express the gospel in the present age, with how to apply those gospel realities to our present situation, the witness of the scriptures and the witness of the church it would be you would be fools to do so without also sitting at the feet of the ancients because God has made you members of the same body. And if you are members of the same body, you need every single member for the health of the church, which means you need not just the living, but who? The dead. And if we find ourselves engaging with an issue and you look at the church and you see a wide diversity of opinions... We should probably not be too dogmatic about that particular issue. But if we find the vast majority of the church all seem to hold the same opinion, the same interpretation of Scripture, the same view of Jesus, the same gospel, and we find ourselves out of accord with that, that should cause us all to stop and ask this very serious question Are they the ones who are blind, or am I? Are they God's means of calling me to alertness to wake up to the cultural realities I have been unconsciously absorbing? I'll give you one example where we need to be doing this very carefully. As we as a culture and as a church keep grappling with the issue of human sexuality, we shouldn't be acting as though we're the first people to think about that we should be looking back at the church across the ages and asking what is it that they have said about this issue. And if we have come to believe and to believe that the Bible says something different than the majority of the Christian church across history has said, at the very minimum it should give us pause and make us wonder if maybe we have become blind and maybe Jesus, through his church, of which he has made us members, maybe Jesus is reproving, rebuking, and exhorting us to return to him because there is one faith of which we are all heirs, not one that changes with the times, but one that is stable and never changes because it's rooted in Christ himself. We need the clean sea breeze. 
We need the clean sea breeze of the centuries to blow through our sanctuaries Sunday after Sunday to lift our eyes out of this present moment and to see the larger story of which Christ has made us a part. Of the God who is redeeming all things and who on the day his son returns, he will make all things new. He will judge the living and the dead. He will purge this world of sin and restore it to its glory and fill it with its presence. And if we, if we are heirs, citizens of that city, then that's the day we'll receive that inheritance in full. That is where our hope is. That is what sustains us. That is what we hold fast to. And as members of that body and heirs of that faith that spans the ages, let's spend a moment and let's confess together the faith that binds us together. Would you stand with me? And would you confess with me the truths of the Apostles' Creed? Christian, what is it that we believe I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He suffered the agony of hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Gracious Father, Lord, you have bestowed on us the gift of adoption as your children. You have made us heirs of an inheritance that Jesus Christ alone deserves, but by grace, Lord, you have given us a share as brothers and sisters of Christ. We ask, Lord, where our hearts are going astray, would you call us back? Where our hearts need to be encouraged, would you encourage them now with the hope we have in Christ? And Lord, would you lift our eyes? Would you lift our eyes to see you in your greatness and in your glory and in your goodness? and the eternal hope that we have as citizens of your city. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.